Well, good morning. My name is Jason Weatherall, and I'm the family minister here at Windsor Road. And I want to kick off today with a little exercise, all right? So if you've got a, uh, a piece of paper around or the sermon notes or a bulletin or a pen and your arm and you want to write on that or you've got a smartphone you can keep it in, we're going to make two little lists here, okay? So just a little activity here. I promise nobody's going to get hurt. Um, just make, we're going to make two little lists. Now, the first list is this. I want you to name, and this may be just a little difficult. I want you to list the top five most influential sermons you have ever heard in your entire life. Okay, I'll give you your whole length of your life to come up with this list, all right? The top five most influential sermons you have ever heard in your whole life, all right? Now, just for ease of remembering, we're going to go ahead and list the last five that I've done over here. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, list the top five most influential messages you've ever heard in your life, all right? You guys are looking at me. Is that because you're already done? Or are you having a little trouble? All right, we'll move on to the second list. All right, I want you to write on the second list next to it, the five most influential people in your life. Over the course of your life, who have been the five most influential people along the way? Now, my guess is that as you write, the point of this exercise is pretty obvious, right? It's that relationships matter. It is probably a whole lot easier for all of us, myself included in this room, to make a list of the five most influential people in our lives than it is to make a list of five sermons that we've heard along the way, all right? The impact that someone has in a life, in your life, stays with you. And, uh, and we're in a series right now called Weird, all right? And this series, actually, we, we took this from a week of camp that we did with our middle schoolers this summer. And what we're doing is we're looking at parables. We're looking at stories that Jesus told each week. This is our second of three weeks doing this. And, and so we're looking at kind of the countercultural teaching that Jesus did. That these stories that Jesus told, uh, you know, they, they went into the audience that he was speaking to, and they hit them in kind of an odd way. Because Jesus routinely flipped conventional wisdom on its head and shared something in a brand new significant way that really changed things for the people who heard him and challenged us to live in light of it. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, all right? Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Chapter 25 is uh, is most of the way through Matthew. If you've got a Bible in the chair in front of you, that's page 702. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. And while you flip this, there. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of context here for what we're about to read. Just like last week, this parable comes from, from towards the end of Jesus' life. And I think you can just feel the urgency in his teaching and the things that he says. There's just a change in the way that he speaks to people toward the end of his life. In fact, we are just two days away from the Last Supper here. We're three days away then from the cross. Uh, And and Jesus has this teaching where he says, you know, the day and the hour of his return are unknown. He's challenging us to be ready for it. And then he shares a story about ten bridesmaids and five of them are ready and five of them are not. And the challenge is to be ready. We should live lives of readiness for his return. 
And then he shares a, a, a parable of the talents that we talk about probably more often than a lot of parables in church. And the idea is that with the gifts that are given to us come expectations. You know, God gives us gifts, whether they're financial or whether they're in, in, in uh, abilities that we have, and he expects us to use those things for his kingdom. And then he comes upon this sheep and the goats uh, parable that he gives, which is probably the climactic teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew. I mean, it really is kind of a huge moment here. So here's what he says in Matthew 25, verse 31. This is Jesus talking. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's talking about himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now this throne imagery, and it's used this three times throughout the book of Matthew, brings us back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, this is long after Daniel's had the lion's den experience. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision, and, and, and he has this, this vision. Actually, it's kind of hard for him to understand. And, and towards the end of this vision, the idea is that the Son of Man, this Messiah that they're waiting for, defeats this beast. And it, and it shows his dominion over this entire world. And that's the, the language that, that Matthew wants us to be reminded of, is this throne of judgment that Jesus will sit on. Okay, and it's important to note, there's really, uh, there's, there's nothing that we read that, that makes us believe that, that he thought any less of goats, okay? It's not like the sheep are the good ones and the goats are the bad ones in, in their culture, or anything necessary about that. You know, it's hard for us to understand because anytime we do a comparison, we think, well, one's good and one's bad, right? You know, if I said we separated the Cubs fans from the Cardinal fans, you would make an immediate assumption as to one of those, which is, and I'll leave it alone, but... Um, you know, I said, I said for service, be thankful this isn't like student ministry because you would have come in and gotten a sheep goat or, or a sheep card or a goat card. You know, we would have separated you to the sides here and then we probably would have lined the middle with dodgeballs, you know, and we would have sorted it out or whatever. We would have figured out judgment some way. But um, the right was considered a place of honor and the left not so much. And before we get too far, it's important to remember too that what the parables, what Jesus is trying to communicate through these parables. He is not trying to give us a whole system of theology. You know, everything that you needed to know about one particular subject. This is not all there is, an exhaustive uh, reference to Judgment Day or anything else. He's trying to give us one picture of his expectations of how we live our life along the way. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you, and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? When do we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, I was on a camp team uh, while I was in college, and we would travel around. We spent an entire summer traveling around doing weeks of church camp, okay? So over the course of eight weeks, we were at seven weeks of church camp. Now, some of you hear that, and you think that sounds like heaven, probably, and some of you hear that and think, oh my goodness, no way. But it was a great summer. We had a blast. 
And at one of the weeks of high school camp, the faculty did this, the, the dean had this activity planned for us. And, and the idea was we were going to create a simulation game of life for the high school students who are at this week. And so there were all stations set up all afternoon, things they could do. They'd go play sports, they'd go buy candy, or they could go out to the lake. There was a church place that they could go to, and they were given like monopoly money to go throughout the day and participate in these different activities. And what the students had no idea was coming was a judgment day at the end of the day. Now, I, I know, I, I have to just confess, I'm sorry. The way that we did church camp in the 80s and 90s was just different, all right? I, and I apologize for the weeks of camp I was a part. I was, it was just, if you went to camp back then, I did. You know, it was like, we used ma- manipulative tactics to break the children, right? <laughs> we no longer do those things today, at least not any week I'm a part of. We try to inspire kids to make good decisions. But anyway, okay, so at the end of the day, there was a judgment day. And we had picked something arbitrary, like two attendances at the church station throughout the day, and that's what got you into heaven, okay? I'm, I'm sorry, but... And even throughout the day, there were missionaries walking around telling kids to go to church, and there were tempters walking around getting them to do other things and stuff. And, and so my job for it was awful, okay? My job was at the end of the night, I had the book of life, which decided which place you went. So the kids would walk up and tell me their name, and I would say... You know, either going upstairs or downstairs, basically, okay? And so the kids who were going to heaven got to go into the gym with the air conditioning and the music playing and play basketball and hang out. And the kids who were going to hell went down to like the cellar underneath the cafeteria. I was, I was awful, okay? I'm sorry, you're laughing at me. I'm not proud of it. I'm just telling you. But I'll say this. It was a powerful exercise, Albeit creepy and manipulative, it was a powerful, powerful exercise, both for the students and for the adults who are participating in it. Just as a reminder that there are some expectations on how we live our life, that there is a judgment coming, and and our life reflects our readiness for that. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when do we see you sick? Or, I'm sorry, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That verse 46, those are some interesting words given sometimes our modern discussions. And and it's not a modern discussion, it's an age-old discussion about, well, maybe, you know, maybe is heaven real? Is hell even real? And we ask all these different questions, would God and what? And sometimes I have to respond, guess who talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? Jesus, right? You know, I look at this, and, and believe me, no one wants to erase the idea of hell more than I do. When we get done with church today, we're going to head out. Uh, my family is going to go to Tennessee for a few days and see my grandmother. And so tomorrow morning, when I get up, probably before the kids get up, tomorrow morning, I will go visit the grave of my dad, who died several years ago. He took off when I was a kid and died several years ago, as far as I know, without much of a relationship with Jesus. Believe me, no one wants that not to be a reality, but I still have what I read in God's word. 
And I guess what I'm left with is a challenge, is a call to my own life to try to erase hell for as many people as I possibly can over the course of my lifetime. To make sure that that is a reality for as few as is humanly possible because I'm going to tell as many as I can. See, and we read this and we ask questions, I think fair questions, about what we call works righteousness. You know, Jesus says it, and he says it himself, right? You know, those who did a bunch of things go to heaven, and those who did not do things. And so we read that and we say, okay, well, do I, do I earn salvation? You know, like when I get, when, when it's judgment day, is there going to be like a scale that I get weighed on or that my deeds get weighed on? As long as I got more good ones than bad ones, then I get to go in. And, and if I don't, then I get kept out. And my question for that would be, well, does that square with the rest of what you read in the Gospels and the New Testament? You see, your actions reveal your heart. Your actions tell the rest of us about what is inside your heart. How you act when the cameras are on or a bunch of people are around or you know that everyone is watching you, that doesn't tell us much about you. Your heart is you're revealed when you are around those you might consider lower than you. Whether it's your own kids or, or it's subordinates at work or it's anyone else, that's when your heart is revealed. I had a post on Facebook this week. Uh, I thought it was cool that uh, Christian Bale had gone to go visit some of the, the victims from the shooting in Colorado, and uh, several people had commented on it, and I, I had been reminded I had forgotten, honestly, about the angry, mad rant that Christian Bale had a couple years ago and stuff like that. But uh, some, one person from where we used to live commented on it and said, well, I am not that impressed with this. You know, there were 59 people hurt, and he visited seven of them, and two of them had to come to him, and I am just not impressed with this. And I gotta be honest, most of the time, I just don't even respond on Facebook. It's just not worth the time. I don't wanna argue. I don't care. Half the time, I end up just deleting the post anyway. But this time, I thought, well, I just, I just wanna say something. And I said, you know, listen, I, I just don't feel like I have enough information here to cast a stone in this. You know, if, if Bale was, was on the set of another new movie and leaving the set for a day to go visit people cost either the studio or him personally $100,000, then, then that was pretty cool, even for seven. You know, if he was at home playing, hanging with friends on his couch, on his phone or something like that, then, then shame on him. That wasn't a big thing. I said, in any case, I'm guessing it mattered to the seven people he went to visit, right? I think it made a difference in their lives. And this person commented back, well, you know, I'm not impressed by any celebrity. I'd be just as impressed if my neighbor went to go visit them or something. Of course, my neighbor couldn't get in because all the HIPAA laws and everything else, but I guess that doesn't apply to celebrities. And it's like, okay, I, I don't know, you know, so he didn't visit enough or he did or I don't know. But what I know is this, your actions reveal your heart. If in the end, in the judgment, someone were excluded because there was a life of actions that wasn't there, okay, then to me, it wasn't the actions, it wasn't the lack of action that kept you out. It was a heart that was hardened over the course of a life to a bunch of needs around them. Okay, remember, for Jesus, for Matthew, for Paul, they never saw faith and works as separate issues like we want to make them today. They saw them as intertwined. Anyone who has faith should have it show up in their lives with action. And anyone who doesn't have any action must not have any faith. 
Remember, it's in James 2, where James says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Sound familiar? If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Okay, remember, this parable also is a great reminder to us that sins of omission are just as big of a deal as sins of commission. Okay, he says, you know, when did we do these things for you? When you did them for the least of these. When do we not do these things? When you did not do them. And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about how um, this section of Matthew came alive for me this summer. Um, I, I was uh, privileged to take my fifth trip to the Dominican Republic uh, in June. And, uh, and while I have, I have great memories, you can see we go to Santiago up here on the north side of the island. While I have great memories from all the years I've been, this is the year where sometimes I can't sleep at night because of some of the things I saw on this trip. When we go, we go to the city of Santiago, or just outside of Santiago, and, and the trip consists of a, a, a travel day, three work days, uh, a children's ministry day, a day of church, and then a day at the beach, and then we travel home. And this year was a little different for me because there were a couple of us on the trip that did two work days, and then we went over to Haiti, to the other side of the island, for a day. And I got to tell you, traveling from the DR to Haiti is a surreal experience, Okay? It, is, it is just crazy. There are four cities where you can cross between the DR and Haiti. And, and when you get to one of those, the first thing you do is on the DR side, you go to emigration to leave the country. And you never know what you're going to get. It could take you an hour to get through. It could take you four hours. You might just get told no. And, and our guy that we went with didn't want to bribe anybody. So he took pudding cups as a sign of goodwill to the workers at immigration. Uh, and we were able to get across pretty quickly. But <laughs> it works. Um, but two days a week, it is a market day when the Haitians are allowed to come over the border and sell their things at market, which meant there was just a sea of people at this border crossing. And we have to cross over a bridge. We drive our car over a bridge. And the, the bridge goes over a, a river that is called Massacre River. Um, and, and the reason for that is, you know, there's a tough history between the two sides of the island, if you know much about this. Uh, the Haitian side was, cel- was settled by the French. The DR side was settled by the Spanish. And, and along the way, the Haitians had a revolt and tossed the French out, which actually was a really cool thing. It made them the first free black republic in the world. It was a very, very cool thing uh, for the Haitians. But unfortunately, along the way, that wasn't enough, and they decided to march over into the DR side. And so there were a couple times where there were major, major conflicts along the way. And, uh, and, and, and so much so, there's still so much bad blood that in the 30s, Trujillo said that, that uh, he wanted to go and just wipe out the Haitians. Just wanted to send the Dominicans in and wipe them out. And so they go in, but he said, the one thing is we don't want to find any Dominican bullets in Haiti. And so when he sends them over there with machetes, you can imagine why the river is called Massacre River. Um, and so there's always been bad blood between the two. It is, I'm happy to say it's getting better now after the earthquake and things like that. But um, we work in poor neighborhoods around Santiago. But I was fully unprepared for what I saw in Haiti. Because you always feel when you're around a city, no matter where it is, like there are still some of the comforts within reach. 
And it was totally, totally different. When we crossed over that river, I mean, we left a a DR city that had nightlife going on and had, you know, music playing and there were loud things and people smiling and all that. And when we crossed over, it looked like a bomb had gone off. I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with any of the Terminator movies, you know, and you're, you look in the future and, 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 you know, there's been war and so there's just a desert everywhere and stuff like that. That's what it felt like. I mean, trash heaps, children digging in the trash, those with handicaps begging. I mean, it was just unreal. We go about another hour or so to get to our destination, which is Phaeton, uh, Haiti. And Phaeton is up on, the, uh, up on the north side in Haiti, so way away from Port-au-Prince or anything you would have heard about on the news. And we go to, when we go to Phaeton, we find out it actually owes its beginning to an American company that had come in. And so in the 40s, there's this American company that comes in, they find a route there that they're able to make rope out of. And so they settle a village, essentially. And, and honestly, Phaeton, Haiti, probably has some of the best housing in Haiti because it's built with, with uh, uh, cement and stuff like that instead of just wood. And so they drudge out the harbor and everything to allow for bigger ships to come in and all of that. It, one, of the, one of the things we realized while we were in Phaeton was that, ironically, probably the people of Phaeton had a better life in the 1940s than they do today because of what the factory provided for them. Well, Along on the scene comes, you know, synthetic nylon and, um, and other ways to make rope. And by the 70s, the company's going under. By the 80s, they just pull out. And when they pull out, they take with them running water, electricity, livelihood for so many. And one of the most brutal things that I saw while I was in Phaeton was that a Haitian-American, so one of their own had come in. A Haitian-American has come in and has built himself a little nicer house, put cisterns up on the roof to be able to have his own running water, and then he bought up all the land rights by the, by the ocean there where it comes in in the harbor. And so he is able now to charge people to go to the beach. And, and of course, no one in Phaeton, Haiti, is able to pay money to go to that beach, so they just don't go, and people get bust in from other areas. So imagine living in abject poverty. And the, only, the one bright spot is that you live 300 yards away from a tropical Caribbean beach, and now even that has been taken away. So we toured the village, and I'm processing all this stuff, and we're walking down a street, and I just, I just broke down. I mean, I was just done. Because I'm looking around, and I'm realizing that I'm, I'm around people who, who have probably never known running water or electricity in their entire lives. And four days ago, I was on, a, on three airplanes, and I was eating chicken McNuggets at an airport and all that kind of stuff. I was reminded of these words, they will also answer, they will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Well, it was as though God felt like I needed one more uh, reminder, one, uh, a little more work on my heart. We got back to, uh, to, to Santiago that night, and the next day, we went to a place called The Hole that uh, many from our church have gone to on various trips down there. And, and The Hole is basically a trash dump where people have built houses into the side of it. Okay, it's the lowest point in Santiago, so when it rains, all the water flows down there into this place, making it not a very great place to be. And, and so the way it works is you, you start up, up on street level, 
And, uh, and that's where the drug dealers' houses are and stuff like that. And then you start down these steps, and then there are these winding sidewalks through these homes uh, to get down to the very bottom where the sewage is and, and all that kind of stuff. And so you're walking down, and you're realizing as you walk that there's a trickle of water next to you, next to the sidewalk. And it usually isn't until you get a little bit further down that you realize what it is, that that's sewage water and stuff like that runoff from the street and things like that just flowing down by your feet next to you to get down to the bottom. And so we get down there. By the time we get down to the field at the bottom, there are probably 50 kids with us who just want to play, who just want to hang out down here. And so I just grab this little blue ball and I start kicking it with this little girl uh, named Viveska. And uh, she and I have a kind of an instant connection. She's six years old, and we have daughters who are seven and five. And, uh, and, and so we're kicking the ball back and forth. And um, about five minutes into kicking the ball, it rolls down uh, into, uh, into the little sewage area, you know, into probably a, about an 18-inch across little channel of sewage, and it goes down into that. So I think what you all would think, Right. Well, that ball's gone, you know. Come on, Vivesco, let's go get a wiffle ball. Like, it's time to do something else. And I look around, and I see that she is starting to climb down to go get the ball. Well, then I do exactly what any of you would have done, which is to grab her and get her out of there. And then I go down and get the ball. And then the next three times while we're kicking the ball around that the same thing happens, I go down. And, uh, and we play for about an hour, and then it's time for us all to leave, and, you know, the, the kids all want us to stay, and we hug, and, and I'm able to get this picture. And I, I told Elizabeth when I got home, I said, it's a good thing that her mom didn't come out from, from, a, you know, from the house somewhere and say, could you just take my daughter with you? Because I, I would have had some explaining to do when I got home, you know. I said, I, I think within six months, this girl, you wouldn't be able to tell which of the three of ours were adopted. I mean, it just, you know, she was just that kind of, of sweet little kiddo. And as we're walking back up, um, I came across what was the most haunting image for me in the whole trip, and the one that sometimes I still wake up in the night and I see. Um, There are three of us who are kind of in the front of our group, walking up the sidewalks, getting back up to street level. And the the three of us come around a corner, and we see a Dominican boy who has uh, an empty 20-ounce bottle, probably a Pepsi bottle or something like that, you know, a little 20-ounce bottle, and it's clear and it's empty. And he takes it and he reaches down into that canal of water that I told you was coming through next to the sidewalk with whatever in it. And he lifts it up. And I mean, like you would feel if you were in the desert and thirsty and whatever else, grabs that water and just rears back and drinks it. (laughs) And, And we just shuddered. I mean, we just, we couldn't even process what we had just seen. And the boy probably wonders why when he goes to bed at night, his tummy hurts or whatever else. But it was time to go, so we kept on walking. And, uh, and we got up to the steps to go up to the street level. And as we're getting there, it's starting to sprinkle, and we decide we want to take a group picture together, so we do. And uh, by the time we get up to the street level, it's now raining on us. And then we get into the vans, and it is like a torrential downpour just coming at us the entire time. In fact, it was so much that with the route we were going to take home, we weren't able to. We had to stay in town and eat while we were in Santiago before we even go out to the village we were working in. Because at one, um, one intersection, the water was going to come all the way up to the window. And we get in there, and, and I have to tell you, the general sense for us as a group was, you know, man, we made it just in time, Right? You know, we're in the van, and we've just gotten out of the rain, and we're so close. And, 
And when that was said, this overwhelming sense of just guilt and grief took over for me. And I said to the van that I was in, I said, I, I just hope we all know that the 50 kids we just left behind didn't get out just in time. That, that the ghost staff told us that when the rains come through like that, sometimes they just, they just go through in a flood down those sidewalks going down, and sometimes they'll wipe out the bottom 15 houses down there in the hole, just gone in an afternoon. They will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And I can tell you, as I've come back and we've talked as a staff, we are having significant conversations about what our impact down there could look like. And we already sent teams down to the Dominican Republic. We already partner with Go Ministries. And we also already support a pastor who is down in the Dominican. But we have started talking about what could we do on the Haiti side of things You know, everything from sending groups that just go down there or partnering with a pastor down there and leading a church or maybe when it comes time to build family life space here, we build down there as well. I have no idea, but I can tell you this. We're serious about the conversations about what it looks like. My question is, what does it look like for you? What does your involvement in what God is doing around the world look like for you? See, it doesn't matter what God puts on your heart, only that you go and respond to it. And maybe it looks like inside church. Maybe, that, maybe that's just your reality. You have just always kind of sat on the sidelines and never jumped in and got involved serving. There are needs all over this building as we head into the fall. You know, people who help greet families when they come in. People who help teach kiddo classes. People who help lead small groups all over for all ages. There are tons of places for you to start for the first time and get involved. Or what about in our community as a whole? You know, we got Family Resource Day coming up. Lisa mentioned this incredible project with a house or serving at Salt and Light or Empty Tomb or anywhere else. But maybe it's global for your family. Maybe you really need to think about your first time of going on an international mission trip. Maybe there's a project your family could bite off together and be in, in, in a, as a community in your family making a difference. It doesn't matter where or how you serve, only that you do something. The band's going to come back up and they're going to play a special. We're going to show a few more pictures from Haiti as you process how God might be leading you. But here's what I want you to understand, okay? There's not a person in this room that doesn't get passionate about something. And there's not a person in this room who doesn't look around and see needs around them and have a burden on their heart for those things. And believe me, whatever those things that are on your heart, I guarantee God cared about those things a long time before you realized they were going on. And we talk a lot of times about finding God's will for our life. And I think, I really believe that if you take your passions and you take the needs of others and then where God is moving, I think at the center of those things, you will find God's will for your life. 